Good morning, Fit Story from the Chinders. Sending love from sunny, sunny Camber. We've really missed being with you all properly, but we hope to see you all in person really, really soon. Hi, we're Team Hughes. Welcome to the Fit Story morning service. Morning, Fitzroy. I'm Christine. And I'm George. Welcome to Worship at Fitzroy this Sunday morning. Calimera Fitzroy from Moina here in Thessalonica in Greece. I've been here a bit longer than I intended to be, but I hope to be back in Northern Ireland in a few weeks' time. In the meantime, it's been lovely to share the services with you on Sundays and to see so many of you on the screen and I hope it won't be too long before we can meet in person. Good morning Fitzroy. Sorry about the beard. They say it might be one of the side effects of a gallbladder operation, but it's really good to see you, or at least to be uh, speaking to you. What a two weeks uh, I have had, and I want to thank you that in those two weeks I have had so much incredible support from the Fitzroy family, from cards to messages, um, to prayers it has just been really wonderful and thank you very much I am feeling so much better uh, every day and every way it gets better and better is literally the case uh, and I hope to be preaching to you next Sunday but I am delighted this week to welcome the Reverend Dr David Bruce the moderator of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland David's brother-in-law Clive Gould is of course a member of Fitzroy so uh, David has sat in with us many a Sunday morning and I'm just delighted that he volunteered to preach today as I am delighted that Paul Bowman and the youth team uh, filled in for me last week. It's been amazing to know and to lie and relax and recuperate knowing that we have uh, so many able people around us. So I'll see you next week. Don't forget to check out the website. Don't forget to check the resources that are on there. Don't forget also that though there's no offering plate, you can still give to the things that Fitzroy have been doing over lockdown and will continue to do. I know the government are saying we're back in church on the 29th of June. That's lovely rhetoric, but it's going to be a while before we're back in any kind of way. And so we will give you more information as it goes. But I'm pretty sure that we'll not be in church next Sunday morning and you'll see me here, hopefully, preaching again. So thanks again to everyone. Enjoy, David, and have a good rest of the service.
As we pray for other people, we say to God that we completely depend on him. As I pray, I'm going to invite you to join in by saying out loud, wherever you are watching this, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. So let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for the many ways you bless us each day. For the safety of our homes and every example of love and care which we receive from friends and family. These are gifts from you. Bless those who are fearful or in particular need of comfort and care in these days of isolation and social distancing. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for politicians, for civil servants, for other policy makers who are seeking to make wise decisions on our behalf about the lifting of lockdown restrictions. We pray for safety as people begin to have more opportunities to meet, just as we pray for common sense as we learn how to adjust to life in this new way. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for the NHS, thanking you for the incredible commitment of staff, including cleaners and porters, administrators, caterers, nurses, doctors, and many others who continue to remain alert while dealing with the normal challenges of their roles. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We thank you that Steve continues to recover at home following surgery, and we pray for him, for Janice, Caitlin and Jasmine. We pray that Steve will grow in strength each day and that the benefits of the treatment he has received will soon become clear to him. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for the Presbyterian Church right now, right across Ireland, and for our partner churches overseas who are also having to adjust their life and work in light of all that has happened. We pray for the many displaced people living in refugee camps, perhaps especially in Lebanon today, knowing that social distancing is not practical and where even the basics of health care and hygiene are inadequate. But we thank you for our brothers and sisters in the National Evangelical Synod of Syria who are seeking to provide practical relief in these terrible conditions. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And we pray for Fitzroy in these days, asking that you might help us to see in the darkness of the road we are travelling, to act in your name for the good of our community, and to be the means of answering our own prayers for those of our number who need comfort and hope 
may we increasingly be a community of gospel light in this place. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. You have taught us to pray. And so, using the traditional words of the Lord's Prayer, we say together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. Thank you.
Hello Fitzroy, welcome to Rugby Road. Today we're going to be uh, reading about the persistent widow, someone who Pierce would say that I regularly uphold. The reading comes from Luke chapter 18 verses 1 to 8. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea. Grant me justice from my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Word of the Lord. Good morning, Fitzroy. It's a very special pleasure for me to stand in for Steve Stockman today. I've known and admired Steve since he was a teenager and I simply remain in awe of his single-minded determination to work out what the gospel of Jesus Christ means in Northern Ireland and indeed beyond. I so appreciate Steve's creative drive in starting the Four Corners Festival uh, his collaboration with Father Martin McGill and, of course, others across the churches, and his gritty determination to continue the work of Fitzroy following the groundbreaking ministry of Ken Newell in the past. The Presbyterian Church in Ireland is privileged to have Steve as one of our ministers, and it's therefore a huge honour for me as moderator to occupy this space today for him while he recovers at home following surgery. Steve, for you, we're glad that Gaga has left the building. And to anyone else watching this who doesn't know what that means, I'm terribly sorry, but I'm not going to explain it. Some of the most persuasive lessons which Jesus taught his followers were to help them to live through the period of waiting which we are now in between his first coming, which we celebrate at Christmas, and his second coming, which has been prophesied but not yet fulfilled. And we sometimes call the teaching to fill this gap the parables of delay. And this is one of them. In this story, we meet two characters, a widow and a judge. So this particular parable is of the how much more variety. In other words, it doesn't set out to compare the character of the judge with God, but to contrast them. It doesn't say that because the judge in this story behaves in this high-handed and corrupt way that somehow God will do the same, but rather because this wicked and inadequate judge can do good albeit from bad motives, how much more will God do good from good motives? So it's a parable of contrast rather than comparison. 
So let's have a look at the story. In verse 1, the purpose of the parable is shown, and it's to teach persistence in prayer. It's to encourage us and to challenge Christians to that complete commitment and consistent commitment to pray on, even when it seems that God is disinterested or even silent. I wonder if you have ever prayed for something and wondered why God apparently doesn't do what you hoped. If we understand Jesus correctly, this silence of God is something we need to be prepared for. In this period of waiting for Christ's return, let's call it the age of the church, God is not silent, but is in fact working his purposes out primarily through us. Now we can also see a contrast here between the patterns of prayer which were inherited by Jewish people and those that Jesus was now teaching and expecting of Christian people in the time to come. And there's quite a difference. We know from the Old Testament that it was accepted Jewish practice to pray three times daily and indeed to limit prayer to this pattern because of the rather superstitious idea that God could be wearied if we bother him with more. Not so, says Jesus. My followers are to pray always. That is to say they are to pray consistently, continuously, persistently, and indeed, as the Apostle Paul would later put it, without ceasing. So prayer is clearly important, even though it might seem to be pointless because God seemingly doesn't answer. Well, he does answer, of course, and answers big time, just not how we think he will, and more of that in just a moment. In verse 2 of this story, we're introduced to the characters. Firstly, a maverick judge who neither feared God nor cared about people. Now, in Israel, at the time of Jesus, the judicial system was carefully and indeed fairly set up. An ordinary domestic dispute would first go before the elders and not to the courts. And this was to see if it could be resolved informally and amicably. If the case then went to court, a judge would be part of a panel of three, one chosen by the plaintiff, one chosen by the defendant, and one who would sit independently. Now, the scene that's described in this parable is clearly very different. In fact, what Jesus describes here is a a deeply unpopular parallel system of paid magistrates who were appointed by Herod during this period in history of Roman occupation of the land. So this is a rather political story. It's a dig at the occupying powers. These judges sat alone and they were notorious for corruption and bribery. In fact, they had a nickname. They were known as the robber judges uh, in the community. In verse 3, we're introduced to a widow and she wants justice against her adversary. Don't know the detail. What we do know is that the widow is a well-known figure in the Bible as a whole, end to end. She symbolises poverty and defencelessness. 
But look how she approaches this corrupt judge. Her case was solid, apparently, and she kept coming. And the main point of the story is her stubborn, dogged persistence, which is why the judge in verse 5 finally capitulates and gives her what she needs. Her plea was for justice, and her plea was evidently a just cause. She had right on her side. She wasn't seeking vengeance, she wasn't seeking recrimination, but she was seeking a proper outcome, and as I say, it's some unknown dispute where she had been wronged and she wasn't going to give up. Now, if you were to look at her chances of success from the outside, you'd have to say that things didn't look particularly good. As a widow, she probably didn't have friends in high places who could influence the judge. As a widow, she probably didn't have lots of reserves of money in the background which would have enabled her to pay a bribe to ease her case through this rather corrupt system. All she had was her absolute refusal to stop trying. It's great to hear stories like this of the underdog taking on the monolith of a system of justice which has apparently gone deaf. The relatives and supporters of George Floyd may well imagine this week that their case is clear-cut. After all, look at the video evidence, it's terrible. But I'm sure they have also been advised about the many obstacles which will be placed in their way by factional interests in the coming months and years as they pursue justice. I wonder if theirs will be like the case of Zahid Mubarak, who was a prisoner in England at the Feltham Young Offenders Centre, just outside London in the early 2000s. Zahid's family came from Pakistan to Britain, and he got into trouble as a teenager with the law, and so he was sent to Feltham. Now, when he was there, he was placed in a two-person cell with a well-known white supremacist racist who beat him to death one night with the broken leg of a table while he was asleep in his bed. Terrible story. Zahid's family campaigned for years to have an inquiry into why this situation was allowed to develop by the staff in the Young Offender Centre. Eventually, after four long years of trying, the law lords unanimously agreed that an inquiry should be held. And the family emerged from the hearing rejoicing that their long campaign had finally been successful. You have to wonder if they would have got this result if they had remained silent. Would an inquiry into what was clearly a hugely important issue and indeed would become headline news all around the world about institutional racism, would that have been sanctioned if they had simply gone away to nurse their grief and say nothing? Of course it wouldn't. But they persisted and with great determination they pursued their goal. They knocked on the doors of the corridors of power They were unafraid and wouldn't be put off. They went to the judiciary believing in the inherent rightness of their cause. And their victory when it came was all the sweeter 
in face of the immense and hugely powerful institutions of state surrounding the police and the prisons and the courts which resisted them. Somehow there's a special kind of satisfaction in seeing the little guy win. And victories like these, perhaps like nothing else, result in the reform of these very institutions of state, which in this case caused the problem. The George Floyd case will, we sincerely hope, succeed in bringing about all kinds of reforms, and not only in America, but everywhere where migrant populations have arrived and form minorities easily discriminated against. Sadly, you may have to wonder if those terrible events had happened behind a closed cell door, away from the scrutiny of a smartphone on the street. You have to wonder if the story would have been the same. So let's get back to this parable where Jesus has painted a word picture of a situation in which his audience would be clearly on one side of the story. They would have been on the side of the widow in her unequal struggle against a corrupt judicial system. They would have smiled at the judge's exasperation, which we have in verse 5. Look at Eugene Peterson's translation of this. He says, But because this widow won't quit badgering me, I'd better do something and see that she gets justice. Otherwise, I'm going to end up beaten black and blue by her constant pounding. I love that. But then comes the application in verse 7. If such a corrupt and wicked man as this judge eventually gave justice to the widow, how much more will a righteous and good God give justice to those who cry out to him day and night? We cry out to God because we are powerless. If we are not powerless, we do not cry out to God. And that is probably why we find it so hard to pray. In our culture, we have been educated to be powerful. We have career structures which depend on gathering increasing amounts of power as we rise through the ranks. We have a military which is judged on its power. We talk about the rich and the powerful. Power is how politicians get things done. Even the pictures on a screen behind a speaker at a conference are delivered by PowerPoint. I suppose if it was called weak point it wouldn't sell so well. How different the way of Christ. How upside down his kingdom is. To be in the family of God is to be in a relationship of unpower. And here's the thing. This realization of our unpower before him may be the first syllable of the first prayer we have ever truly prayed. This is so counterintuitive to our cultural training and conditioning and probably why big churches in rich countries find it so difficult to pray. It's easier to have a praise service than a prayer service, 
easier to run programs than a prayer meeting. But there is another reason why we don't pray, which is even more basic than this. We don't pray because we think we don't need to. This parable closes with a tantalizing little question concerning the second coming of Jesus. It's in verse 8. What will Jesus find when he comes again? Will he find a people of faith crying out to him day and night? A people who pray are a people who know they are called to see in the dark. A people who walk by faith, not by sight. A people who are developing certainty of what they do not see. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 talks about that. Would you walk a stony, rocky path in the dark without a torch? Would you walk an unknown and dangerous road without knowing where you were going or better still without a guide beside you who knew the way already? We pray because we desperately need to. It is perhaps the most human thing we can do because it accurately describes our weakness in face of, for example, a pandemic world and our absolute dependence upon God for our very survival. Small wonder that Google searches for prayer in the last three months have risen so much. We know we're in the dark. We know we need a light. We know we don't have the power to control this. We know it's out of our hands. At this time when our churches are facing unprecedented moments of uncertainty, unable to meet, and at least for the time being here in Fitzroy without Steve at the helm, it's all the more necessary for us to be a people who pray. Pray for Steve as he recovers, but pray also for your elders. A huge responsibility is being placed on their shoulders as they try to plan ahead, imagining what they cannot yet see beyond this pandemic. Batter the doors of heaven down for the Presbyterian family around Ireland and indeed with our partner churches overseas. Be persistent in prayer for them because they are facing the same impossible challenges as we are and not just within the Presbyterian family but all the churches across this land. As your moderator, I attended a meeting with the two archbishops and the Methodist president just a few days ago. Now, in the past, these meetings of the church leaders, I understand, have been very polite affairs with coffee and cake and necessary but fairly general conversation once every few months. Well, let me tell you, that was not what this meeting was like. This was a meeting on Zoom with a packed agenda, no coffee in sight, regrettably, and we're going to have to do it again in another few days because we need to face, face these days of crisis together. So I ask you to pray and do not expect God to act on our behalf if we haven't asked him to do it. Amen.
Grace, mercy, and peace from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with us all, now and forevermore. Amen.
Stand and watch as giants 